All right. So Mark chapter 3, let's start reading in verse 1. It says, And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man which had a withered hand, and they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth, and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. So in the last chapter, we saw how Jesus illustrated the, uh, that they had missed the point of the law. Remember when they were accusing him because the disciples were just picking corn and eating it on the Sabbath, and then they got all bent out of shape, and they start bringing up the law about the Sabbath, basically casting a burden on the disciples, and the truth is the Sabbath was not something that was meant to be a burden, yet these people had turned it into a burden. These people were taking the things of God and making them burdens and making them hard on people. They were making people's lives more difficult. And so here in this story, in a famous miracle of a man with a withered hand, when you have a withered hand, if it's all shriveled up and you're not able to you know, function like you can with a healthy hand, your life is going to be much more difficult. So the thing is, getting your hand healed on the Sabbath day, you, your life just got a whole lot easier, didn't it? Yet these people, they made such a custom out of just not doing anything on the Sabbath day, they're ready to condemn Jesus just for healing a man, which was absolutely ridiculous. They were thinking more about a tradition or a bad interpretation of a tradition than they were about the needs of an individual and just really making the things of God into this great burden. And so this is what they've been doing. And Jesus illustrated that point in the last chapter when he talked about you don't put new wine in old bottles. And we talked about that. And, you know, sometimes... People, they get so zealous about the Bible and about the Word of God, or they get so zealous even about the laws of God. Sometimes they get more strict than God. Has anybody ever gone to a church where somebody was more strict than God in that church? That's really weird, isn't it? Nobody likes those people either, do they? We've all known those people, and nobody likes them. You say, well, Pastor Tommy, nobody likes me. Well, you're probably one of those people, because nobody nobody likes people like that, so it's just something we need to understand. And, you know, people who are like this, they always are looking for fault in others, which is exactly what the, the, the uh, you know, those who are watching Jesus says, and they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. I mean, if I was there, I'd be watching just to see if he'd heal him because that's pretty amazing. But they're watching thinking this will give us something to accuse him of so we can get him in trouble because they decided that they didn't like this guy. And, Man, whenever I read that verse, I think about a lot of people who watch me on YouTube. It's like, man, you know, if, if you just don't like me, just don't watch. But, you know, they're looking, they're just looking, waiting to tattle on somebody. It, I think that is so weird. You remind me of people I read in the Bible. Pharisees, you know, hypocrites. That's what you remind me of. And so, you know, the truth is, you know, but people that are like this, people who get super zealous, these ultra spiritual type, these hardcore types, okay, they're never content 
to just do what they believe is right. They've got to force everyone else. They've got to accuse everyone else. Listen, if you're right, who cares what everybody else does? It really shouldn't matter. I mean, by all means, teach those that you are in authority of what they are supposed to do. If you are zealous about, you know, women keeping their mouth shut, by all means, keep your wife's mouth shut. But you know what? Leave everybody else's wife alone. That's what you, that's what you, you don't have any authority over these people. And listen, even if I get up as a pastor and I'm hollering about women keeping their mouth shut, I'm just teaching, okay? I'm not making anybody do anything. That's up to the husbands. Yeah, I'll set the example, but after that, you know, she's your problem, okay? If I see your, if I see your wife nagging you out in the parking lot and stuff, I'm not getting involved in that. You know, I, that's that. You know, she's your problem. You know, you you, know, you deal with that. But so when you try to ask people that are like this, the you know these overly zealous types, yeah, and you ask them to give you scripture on a lot of these things, they can't do it. Just like these people, because Jesus, he said in verse four, he saith unto them, "Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life or to kill?" But they held their peace. Jesus, knowing their hearts, he gives them an opportunity. Hey, if I'm doing something wrong, somebody show me. Is it lawful for me to do this? But nobody has anything to say to him. Nobody has anything to say to him. But you know what? People that are like this, they got plenty to say to everybody else, don't they? They got plenty that they can say to everybody else. They got plenty they can say about someone in the church. Not to them, but they got something, you know, they'll tell everybody else about the problem they have with somebody in the church. You know, people that have a problem with a pastor, you know, they, they, the last person they're going to tell is a pastor, but they'll tell everybody else in the church. And, you know, and a pastor can ask, you know, hey, show me where I'm wrong. They won't do it. They won't say anything, but they tell everyone else. This is the way these people always have been and the way that they always will be. And so what we're starting to see, though, in this story is the popularity of Jesus is growing. I mean, we've got just multitudes that are thronging him. And it gets to the point where it just says, um, you know, the, or the, or it's, it's his popularity is growing so much. The Pharisees, all of a sudden, they start getting organized, thinking, all right, we have got to do something with this man. Everybody's following him. We've got to do something. And so that we start seeing the opposition getting organized. They're starting to plot. They're planning. What are we going to do to take this guy down? And notice what it says in verse 7. But it says, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. You know what? Jesus, one thing we see throughout his ministry, he used strategy. You know, there's nothing wrong with being strategic in what we do. As a church, sometimes we might need to be strategic when it comes to our soul winning and how we do things because we, our goal is to get people to listen to us, to get people to gospel, and sometimes, and in some situations, it's just not the best time or it's not the best place. And so you know what we're always doing? We're always just kind of plotting and planning and thinking, okay, right now with what's going on here, what's going on over there, maybe we should kind of focus on this group, focus on this area, stay, you know, stay away from this area for a while. That's why a lot of times when we go to apartments we're not really supposed to go to, we don't go in consecutive weeks. Oh, you should just go whenever you want and just stand up to these people. Well, I don't want to waste my time fighting with cops if I can help it. If I can find a way around that so I can concentrate on actually witnessing to more people, I'm going to do that. And so we see that kind of thing happen with Jesus and with his disciples when sometimes things would just get a little too heated in some areas. And it's like, all right, 
we got to pull back and let's go up somewhere else. Let's go to another place. And uh, I, so I think this is a good example of that. If Jesus used some strategy. If Jesus was, you know, able to assess the situation and say, all right, it'd be better to move on. You know, we can do that kind of thing too. And we've just got to use some wisdom in these things. I think that's very important. Sometimes we might need to improvise. We might need to update our game plan a little bit. And, you know, we've had to do that a lot in the last year with all the, the COVID stuff going on and all the hype and everything, you know, because again, you know, I'm all for, you know, even back when we weren't really knocking doors, but we were just walking the streets, you, you know, what? Well, I'm not against them. If they're like, you know what? I still believe in the right to knock on the door. I'm going to keep on knocking the doors. Well, that's fine. But again, ultimately what we're out to do is reach as many people as possible. And if we think we're going to just waste a lot of time, have to deal with a bunch of junk, and we want to try something that might be a little more effective, it's okay to do that. It really is okay to do that. I know it says in Acts that they went from house to house. I know we got that magic verse. But I believe they went from house to house because it was the best strategy for reaching everybody. And sometimes you got to have a different strategy in different places and during different times. Sometimes that works, and it's the best way. Sometimes it isn't. It all, it all just depends. So, you know, we need to cut some slack, too, to missionaries sometimes that have weird situations. There's some countries, you know, where if, you're, if they're, like, in a big city or something, they can't go door-to-door because everybody lives in apartments and you can't get in these places. But in those cities, people are walking the streets every day. And so, you know what they do? They just go out on the streets. And they talk to a lot of people. That's the most effective way them do it in their area. Well, that's not house to house. Well, uh, you know, that's not a command that that's the only way you can do it. We're just going to try to use the most effective means and the most effective method that we can, depending on the situation. But you know what people do? They'll take that verse like that and they'll make it, they'll emphasize it more than God does to where this is the only way you can go soul winning. This is the only way to do outreach if you're not going door to door and house to house, you know, you're not doing it right. You're not right with God. And that's, that's out of line. Okay. Most of the time, that's the best way, but it's not the only way to do that. And when you act like it is, you're acting like these people we're seeing here in Mark chapter three. So don't be that way. So verse eight says, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him, and he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him, for to touch him as many as had plagues, and unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God, and he straightly charged them, that they should not make him known. So the, his popularity is going, growing so much. I mean, he, he's just being thronged. Everybody's just trying to touch him. But I believe it is very clear in this passage that this, I mean, excitement that we're seeing is not necessarily spiritually motivated. Again, anybody that's healing people is going to get thronged. People are going to get excited about it. And I believe that's another reason we often see Jesus, you know, kind of withdrawing himself and just getting away from everybody for a while because things are just kind of getting out of hand. And you know what? They're not getting the message that I want them to get. And, and Jesus 
knowing people's hearts, knowing the multitudes like he did, he always knew the best thing to do. And so, you know, you and I, we look at this and we think, man, you know, I wish when we would go out soloing, people would just throng us. You know, multitudes would just come to us, you know, because we got something to tell them. But, you know, we could get a multitude to throng us if we went, all went out there just with a bunch of $20 bills and started handing them out. You know, they throng us if we did that. And they definitely throng us if we just started healing people. But is that going to make them listen to our message? It might get the attention of some of them. But would it, would it get the uh, attention of the entire multitude to where they're going to listen to our message? No. You know what? They're going to want that money or they're going to want whatever we're giving out. And as soon as we're out of stuff to give out, they're going back home. That's the way a lot of these people are. So again, this success, it's kind of, you know, in, in many ways, it's kind of almost an earthly success. It's getting the mobs. It's getting the multitudes. That's why the Pharisees envied him. But this wasn't really what Jesus was looking for. He was looking to reach the hearts of these people. He was looking to do the spiritual work. And it was getting, it was, it was not going real well for many people. And so also we see in this section we just read here how the unclean spirits, when they're seeing Jesus, they knew who he was, which I think is really interesting. And uh, Jesus tells them not, that they should not make him known. And I think I mentioned this in one of the previous messages, but you know, I don't, I don't pretend that I understand exactly why Jesus wouldn't want to be made known, but I do lean towards the idea that because their hearts were not ready to receive him. In other words, if the you know these unclean spirits would have been revealing him as the son of God, that would have gotten the people excited, but the wrong kind of excited. Because again, who's not going to get excited about seeing the son of God? You know, well, it's the son of God. This is going to be great, right? Well, here's the thing. The son of God's coming to preach a message that many of you aren't going to like. And you know what? Many of them did not like that message, did they? Because, yes, Son of God sounds great, but that's because they've got an, a God in their own minds that they, you know, believe in. But what Jesus, what who he really was, they didn't really like, did they? They definitely didn't like his message. So this wasn't time to do this. It wasn't time to make this big revelation these people weren't ready, and it would have done damage to the work. I'm not going to pretend I understand exactly why that is, because I can't look at a multitude and see their hearts. But Jesus could, and so the Bible tells us this. So I, I believe that that's why. I just I don't understand all the ins and outs, because again, everybody wants the physical blessing, but not everyone wants the spiritual. And Jesus was mainly there for the spiritual. So verse 13 says, and he goeth up into a mountain. And calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. So Jesus goes up in this mountain, and he calls these 12 to go with him, and he ordains them. Now, uh, this here is a great example and a great illustration 
of what an ordination is. It's important to understand because did you know that ordination is not even really just a Christian thing or even just a church thing? An ordination, uh, and they don't, you know, in our world, they don't really use this word, but technically you could say that a, uh, a sheriff or a police officer is kind of an ordained position. What does that mean? It means somebody gave an individual a certain authority. Okay. An ordination is when you are given a certain authority by someone or something that has the power to give that authority. There are some things that no man just takes to themselves. Even Jesus Christ, he did not take that, uh, that position of high priest on himself. It was something that was given to him by God. No man taketh that honor on himself. Jesus didn't even do that. And so when it comes to positions of authority, these are things that are given. I don't have the right to just go and declare myself the sheriff of Rock Falls. I don't have that authority. Okay, You all, as a church and as a congregation, you don't have the authority to make me the sheriff of Rock Falls. And then I just declare my all this authority on myself. No, those who are actually in the position to give that authority, they're the ones that do that. If it's a sheriff, it's the people that give him that authority, and they do. There's a process to which they do that. They elect him, and and then he has the authority to deputize people, and then they have authority to go out and write people tickets and harass soul winners and all the other things that they do. Some good stuff. Uh, some, sometimes not so good stuff. They, they, that authority is given to them. I don't just you, know, you don't just declare yourself a mayor. You don't just declare yourself a governor. I'd love to just declare myself the governor of Illinois. I'd fix some stuff real quick. But you know what? doesn't work that way, does it? And you know what? What would you all say if I just went and you know, I said, you know what? That's it. I don't recognize the authority of J.B. Pritzker. I am the new governor of Illinois. And you know what? I might even put it on my office door. You know, governor, I might put it on my uh, social media profiles. You know, governor, you know what you all would say? You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Why? Because nobody gave you that authority. Now, let me ask you, why wouldn't we be the same way with things like pastors and stuff? Does anybody just have the right to just declare themselves a pastor? No, that's that's something that's an authority that is given to you. And it's got to be given by a legitimate authority it's important we understand that so notice with these disciples okay we already saw in the previous chapters where jesus started calling some of these guys to follow him. we saw specifically you know levi or matthew that jesus called to follow him so notice these 12 disciples they were already following jesus before he ordained them you know what that reminds me of when the Bible talks about ordaining deacons? It says, let them first be proved. You know what they do? You know what a deacon is supposed to do? He's supposed to do the work first, prove himself, and then he gets the title. Then he gets the authority. That's the way it's supposed to be. There's a lot of people out there that have never done anything in a church. They've never had any kind of, they've never, they've never done any work. They've never done, had any kind of leadership in the church. And it's like they're just waiting for somebody to hand them a title. Why don't you go do the work first? And then you can get your glorious title. Then you can get 
you know, your authority that you desire so much. That's the way we see it in the Bible. And that's the way Jesus even did it with his disciples. These guys were following him and then he ordained them. So I think that's consistent with what we see uh, in when, when Paul talked about ordination. Same thing kind of happened with Jesus' disciples. Notice when he ordained them and when somebody is ordained, okay, I am an ordained individual, but that doesn't mean, you know, I, I go, I can just now go and arrest somebody. All right. Cause nobody get my ordination did give me the authority to arrest somebody. My authority, my, that, that ordination, it was limited in the authority that it gave me. And it was limited. They were limited to the authority that they had, that they were allowed to give me. And, you know, those pastors, when they got together and they laid hands on me, they didn't start giving me all this authority to go arrest people and to execute people and all that kind of, they didn't have that to give. You know what they gave me? Only what they had been given. Only what they were, they were allowed to give based on what, it, what they had received. And so, um, this, you know, Jesus specifically in this passage, he gave them the authority to, uh, cast out unclean spirits. He gave them the authority to heal sicknesses. These were things that they were not able to do before. Before Jesus ordained them, they couldn't heal sicknesses. But all of a sudden now, they're healing sicknesses. How did they get the ability to do that? How did they get the authority to do that? Jesus gave it to them. Jesus gave them that authority. That's why they were able to do these miracles. They were able to do these things in Jesus' name. And when they did it in Jesus' name, it wasn't illegitimate. They actually were sent in Jesus' name. And so I can go, I can go do things in the name of the president if I want. But if he didn't ordain me, if he didn't give me the authority to do something, you know, I'm just a fraud at that point. And I'm going to probably get in a lot of trouble if I try doing that, that type of thing. So, um, ordination, it's so you received the authority to do something specific. So, um, you know, there is certain authority that's just not to be taken for yourself. It's something that's to be given to those who prove themselves to someone who is in authority. So let me explain to you why I'm not necessarily against all congregation-led ordinations, all right? Now, hear me out on this. I'm not against all of it, all right? And, he, and here's why. Because I do think there are situations where it could happen. So first off, the reason I'm not against all congregation-led ordinations is because, one, I do believe in the authority of a local church. And not only should a pastor ordain them, but a church needs to be involved. You see, for example, our church, we bought this building today officially, right? But who was it that signed for it? Okay, I did. Okay? Now, I still don't own it. The church owns it. But one thing I had to do in order to get the bank to give our church a loan, I had to give them a resolution. I had to give them something in writing showing that our church gave me the authority to do that. And we had that meeting over a year ago. I don't remember the date, but we had the date on it. On this date, we had this meeting. We had trustees in the church that signed that showing that Tommy McMurtry has the authority to make these decisions on behalf of the church. And it wasn't just me just kind of going and doing whatever, okay? I'm the one that did it, but I did it on behalf of the church. 
And so pastors do ordain people, but you understand, if you don't have a congregation, then you're not really a pastor, are you? Okay. Now, I've been ordained before, but if all of a sudden I'm not a pastor anymore, does that just give me the right to just kind of go do whatever and start ordaining people? No, because that's something that belongs to churches. And so as the pastor and as the overseer in the church, I'm the one that would administer that ordination, but the authority... Uh, and, and what I'm acting on is on behalf of the church. It's the church that's ordaining somebody. And I'm the one that's doing it in the name of the church. Y'all understand that? that so that, that's how that works. It's because a pastor is an appointed overseer of the congregation. So if there is no congregation, then there is no pastor. So it's not just a pastor who ordains. It's a church. The church usually does it through the pastor. So what if the church doesn't have a bishop? Okay. What if I drop dead? You know, then what do you do in that situation? Because will all of a sudden Liberty Baptist Church just cease to be a church? Well, it's got to, you got to have a church or a pastor in order for it to be a church. Well, what if, again, what if I drop dead? Then are all of a sudden y'all just out of luck? Y'all are illegitimate and you just can't operate anymore? Okay. And so the reason I think a congregation could still possibly do it in many situations because they are still a legitimate church. And often, now it's not, this isn't how it is in our church right now, but often in many churches, there are other ordained people in the church. You know, there are ordained deacons, there's ordained elders. They are not the, uh, you know, other elders, they're not necessarily the bishop or the overseer. But they are in leadership in the church. They are ordained. There's often uh, ordained leadership within that church. And so I do believe that in a situation like that, then where you have other ordained leadership in the church, they could appoint someone. So maybe if there were several elders in the church or deacons or something, they could go and like, you know, hey, we've got several guys here that meet the qualifications. You know, we choose this guy. And then they could appoint him to be overseer of that church. I I would I wouldn't have a problem with that. I think that would probably be better than calling in a pastor from another church because he's not even a part of the congregation. And if if somebody's already an elder and a leader in the church, you all should know him pretty good as a congregation, and you should be capable of making that decision. And I do believe it would count because you all have authority because of the fact that we are a legitimate bona fide church okay? but here's what i don't agree with i do not agree with a bunch of circus clowns coming together and just calling themselves a church and then them ordaining somebody great you got a congregation but you know that group at the rock concert is a congregation too they're congregating together but are they a church Absolutely not. Do they have any biblical authority? Absolutely not. You don't just take that. You know, you don't. You just get a group of people and you just declare yourself a church. I, I, I don't. I don't agree with that at all. So, again, I, I don't. I'm not against all of it. There are varying types of leadership within different churches. Not all of them are are exactly the same. And so, I think there's a lot of situations where the things are in place, the structures in place, the authorities in place, where they could choose somebody. And I don't think they need to call in an outsider. To do it, I you know if, if they want to, that church can. If that church is like, all right, hey, you know, 
yeah, we're a real congregation, but we don't trust ourselves to pick another pastor. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I don't know if we're ready to make this decision and you want to call in somebody else that you trust, then you as a church have the authority to call someone else in and say, hey, help us out. And then if that pastor says, I'll help you out, then you as a church can say, we accept that help. We will, uh, we are allowing you to basically do what you want to do in this situation. That's you as a church giving him that authority. So you all understand that at the end of the day, there's, there's, a, you as a church are a legitimate authority structure. So there can be varying ways you do these things. But again, circus clowns coming together and just declaring themselves a church and then doing that type of thing is not legit at all. It's not legit at all. If that was the case, then you know what you guys could do. You guys, some of you can get together, say, you know what? Let's go start another church on the other side of town. We could have a church split and then you could all just get together and then declare yourself a congregation and appoint somebody to be a pastor. And you know what? That kind of stuff happens. I'm not mentioning any names, but it happens. And we, we don't, but we don't believe in that. We don't believe in that. So I said, I do have strong opinions on how I think things should be done, but you know, I'm not interested in delegitimizing the authority that legitimate churches have. So if another church does things a little different, if they ordain a little different, if another pastor is a little different on how he does things, that's fine. You know, I'll have my opinions and if people ask for it, I'll give it. But if, if at the end of the day, if that's what the church decided to do, you know what? I support that. And well, I don't think that guy was qualified. Yeah, but that congregation who actually has the authority, they think he was fine. They've accepted him as a pastor. They're the boss in that situation. And we just got to deal with it. So um, it's an important thing to understand there. I, I don't want to talk a whole lot about that, but uh, we've talked about that before. But I just think this is a great example and an illustration of an ordination that we're seeing here. And it is. It's something It's something very specific. So, uh, And the thing is, too, we could... There's there's other little smaller things, too, if we wanted to ordain somebody. For example, where it's not necessarily, they wouldn't get a title or a position. Like, I don't think it's wrong for a pastor to maybe appoint someone or ordain somebody in the church to go and on a mission trip or something like that and give them the authority to baptize people in the name of a church. I don't think it has to be, some churches, like you got to be either a pastor or a deacon, an ordained deacon, to baptize anybody. Well, I, if that's that church's rule, then only, you know, the pastor or deacons in that church to baptize anybody. But another church might appoint someone else. At the end of the day, as long as it's under the authority of that church, then I recognize it. And, and I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, people who don't have good churches to go to, uh, the, mainly to live in other countries, hey, you know, would it be okay for me to baptize people? And I was telling them, no, you need to do it under the authority of a church. And unless you can find a church that gives you that authority, then don't do it. You know, I don't, I don't think you ought to do it. And um, I'm not just going to go giving that authority to whoever. It's like, well, we're a church, all right? You live in another country, you've never visited our church before. I'll give you the authority. No, that would be very irresponsible for me to do that. And so we're not going to do that. But anyway, verse 20 says, And the multitude cometh together again, 
so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. So Jesus' popularity is growing to the point things are starting to get out of control. And that's another, probably another reason he didn't want people announcing who he was. I mean, he, he can't even take time to eat. Everyone's bothering him so much. And while Jesus was God, Jesus was man at the same time, and he had a human body. And you know what? He needed to eat. He needed to sleep. He needed some rest. And we do. We see times where Jesus would just get away. He, he needed to do that type of thing. And you know what? Sometimes we just need to get away. Sometimes we just need to break from everybody. And uh, that's, that's pretty normal. So verse 22 says, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then will he, uh, he will spoil his house. And this is a very famous passage about a house divided cannot stand. That is not an Abraham Lincoln quote. That is a Bible quote. If you go to the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, they use that quote a lot, and they always talk about how it comes from some book, and I don't remember, there's some book that was written in Lincoln's day, quoted the Bible, and Lincoln couldn't have got that from reading his Bible, so they always credit it to this other book. And that just angers me greatly. I was sitting in there one time, and I almost just yelled out loud during this presentation thing, it was from the Bible. <laughs> the Bible was written long before that other book that you're talking about. But they just, they don't want to give any credit to the Bible. I don't know why I'm getting sidetracked in that. But I, every time I read that passage and then I think about that, it just, it angers me. Let's give credit to where credit's due. Giving give it to that other book, that's just uh, not right. And if that person, act, whoever wrote that book, acted like it came from them, that's called plagiarism. Shame on them. But anyway... So the scribes now, they're participating in a campaign to turn people away from Jesus, and they use the method of accusations and attributing evil motives and means. They're trying to say, all right, yeah, he did something really cool there, but he's doing it under the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus is trying to show them through these parables and what he's saying here about a house divided, that these are proof that he's not of the devil because he's destroying the work of the devil. So everything I'm doing right now is doing damage to Satan. You know, and so he's illustrating to people who pretended that they were trying to take him down for a righteous cause that their work was pointless because if Jesus was of Satan, then he's destroying the very work of Satan. So you know what, scribes? We don't need you. If what I'm doing is of Satan then guess what? I'm going to destroy the work of Satan because I'm hurting his work right now. And so if the house is divided, it's not going to stand. It's not going to last. But the truth is, what Jesus was doing, it was the real deal. It was going to last. And these people, basically this accusation they were throwing at him was just completely pointless because of the fact that if they were right, then who cares? He's not going to last. This is all going to go away. 
in no time at all because a house divided against itself cannot stand. So that's why he brings that up there. And so verse 28 says, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. So the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost obviously is a very serious sin, but what is it exactly? Okay. Is it criticizing the man of God? All right. If you listen to a lot of camp meeting preaching, that's what you're going to think it is. And uh, I won't even go into some of the horrible messages I've heard on this subject. But all right, what, what it was in this story, what blasphemy of the Holy Ghost was in this story was these people were saying Jesus had an unclean spirit. They were attributing the works of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. And it flat out says that they, the, the, what they had did and what they were saying, it was because they said he had an unclean spirit. So when they said Jesus had an unclean spirit, that was blaspheming the Holy Ghost right there. The Bible tells us that. Now, does that mean that's the only way to blaspheme the Holy Ghost? You know, pro- probably not, but I do agree that, you know, the idea that attributing the work of God to the work of the devil is blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. All right. So, for example, say, well, how do we do that today? Well, you know, here's something that I think you could say is very likely, very possible. I'm not quick to, I'm not quick to, um, pronounce that sin on people because this is a huge accusation. Okay. If blaspheming the Holy Ghost means you have never forgiveness, then we better be careful about who we say blaspheme the Holy Ghost. But let me give you an example of, I think, what could potentially be a blaspheme of the Holy Ghost. How about when you accuse soul winners who are out spreading the gospel and getting people saved of making people twofold more a child of hell? How about that? They're out giving the gospel, doing the work of God, and you're saying they're making them twofold more a child of hell? Wouldn't that be attributing the work of God to the work of Satan? I mean, that seems awfully close to it, and I hear that a lot. I hear I hear that a lot. But here's the thing about that too, though. I don't believe, you say, well, all right, Pastor Tommy just declared that as blasphemy the Holy Ghost. Wait till I get on Twitter tonight. Wait till I get on Facebook tonight. I've got reprobations to give out left and right because I've seen a lot of people do that. Okay? Don't be too quick to do that just yet, though, because I don't believe every accusation against any soul winner is an example of this sin because there are goofball soul winners out there, aren't there? There are one, two, three, repeat after me people out there, aren't there? But, you know, let's suppose, so the thing is, often... People just assume that's what people are doing based on almost no evidence. Okay. But so there's a difference between somebody just throwing out a harsh accusation of you're making them two forward more child of hell. You know, I, I get it. I've seen, we've all seen the one, two, three repeat after me people before. And so I get why some people might be skeptical of soul winning. But here's when I might actually think somebody's blasting the Holy Ghost. If they go out soul winning with me. And they, they, they are with me as I give someone the gospel. 
as they see these people listen, as they hear the questions and they hear, they see the answers these people give and they see that person call on the Lord. And I, I get it. We can't see the heart, but folks, you know, you know, when we're, it, I don't think you all would still be soul winning after all these years if we didn't really think something was happening when we give the gospel to these people and they call on the Lord for salvation. I, I get it. Some people go try it for a little while and they don't really believe in it. You know what? They quit. They flop out. But it's hard to quit doing it when you really know in your heart that these people are getting saved. But if somebody were to go out soul winning with me and then there after they see what I do, they're telling me, you know what? You just did the work of the devil. You just made them two for more a child of hell. I would think something is very wrong with you. Something is very because again, I've heard I've had people accuse me of one, two, three, repeat after me who've never gone souling with me, and I haven't heard my presentation. I don't think they blasphemed the Holy Ghost. I think they just made a railing accusation. But uh, but again, these so in this story, these people. We're watching Jesus do miracles with their own eyes. And then they attributed that to the work of the devil. That right there was blaspheming the Holy Ghost. And so it's one thing for somebody who just like saw a clip of something or, uh, you know, just scoffed at somebody's, you know, Facebook post where they said they got five people saved in one day or something like that. There's a big difference between that just moron that's out there than somebody who has actually been a part of our church, who's gone soul with you, who's actually seen what you've done. They were there. They saw it happen, and they still say something like that. That's when I might actually accuse somebody of that. So hold your horses. You know, let's lay off the reprobations tonight, all right? And, and let's not be quick to accuse people of blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Okay? Let's not just hand that out like we do reprobations. Otherwise, it's going to lose its power. And this is a very serious thing, and so you don't make a, you don't make a serious a serious accusation like that on somebody unless you got the goods on them. So, uh, but I do think that's a good example of one. You know, are we? You know, so here, you know, here's another example too. Maybe we ought to be careful. Let's say a woman starts screaming in a church service because she gets filled with the spirit, and we say we think she's filled with a demon. We better hope the Holy Spirit didn't make her scream like that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he didn't. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But you know what? Maybe, just in case, we don't say they're demon-possessed. Just in case. All right? I, I, think, I think we're pretty safe, but I don't want, I don't want to do anything that bad. All right? Is it blaspheming the Holy Ghost if we laugh at it a little bit or something like that? I don't know, but either way, be careful. Be careful. And if it can't mean people are right, we're all in trouble and we're never getting forgiveness. But I don't think I don't think they're right. I, I don't think they're right. And but uh so I verse third, let's go ahead and go to verse thirty one. Says then there came his then his brethren and his mother and standing without sent unto him, calling him, and the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them, which sat about him, and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and mother. Now, I wish I had time to like break a lot of this stuff down, because I, I, I I, I'd love to give you a good illustration of 
proper exegesis that does not involve going to the Greek. Okay. Well, let me tell you what I believe about this passage, and I'm, and I'm going to give you, try to do this quickly, real exegesis to prove how I interpret this passage right here. So first off, when Jesus did this, this was not Jesus disrespecting his family, but the reason Jesus said this the way he did and at this time is because I think it is clear from this passage, and it's clear just based on the response that Jesus gave, that these people, when they're saying, Behold thy mother and thy brethren, these people were putting a great deal of importance on Jesus' physical family because they were his family. Hey, look, Jesus, your mother and brethren, like automatic awesomeness because of who, uh, you know, because they were related to Jesus. But Jesus, he used that moment to prove spiritual family is more important. Jesus needed to do this because these people who were Jews, who tried to lift themselves up because they were Jews, because they descend from Abraham, you know what they were doing here? They were kind of lifting up Jesus' family because they were Jesus' family. But you know what? It's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. And you say, well, I don't, I don't really think that that's it. I think you're, you know, you're doing some eisegesis there, you're reading into it. Well, actually I'm not, because if you do real exegesis, you do proper exegesis, you look at the, uh, you know, you look at the context, you look at what's being said. I base that off of what was said in that passage, and it just makes sense that Jesus would respond that way. It only makes sense that he'd respond that way if they were making an overly big deal about his family. But also, what you can do for proper exegesis is actually leave that passage and go compare it to other passages of Scripture. Now, let's look at what it says in Luke chapter 11, because we don't have time to go through Luke chapter 11, but you know what else Jesus said? We see in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is the same story, but we get a little more detail in the story, and it says, and it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided, in verse, this is back in verse 17, he, knowing their thoughts, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, a house divided against a house falleth. So this shows this was in the same passage. And in this passage, in the same time, one woman in particular just got up and just started praising his mother as though she had some extra significance just because of the fact she was physically his mother. And don't get me wrong, Mary was important. Mary was a very important woman. Uh, you know, Austin the other day preached a good message about, you know, Mary. And she was, she was a very good woman. She was a very important woman. But spiritually speaking, no significance. Spiritually speaking, Mary doesn't do a thing to get us into heaven. Nothing. And you know what's more important than even that, the fact that she was a physical mother, what's more important are those who do the will of God. Those who share the spiritual message. Those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's more important. That's better than the physical. And Jesus is trying to get, a, again, He's been trying to get a spiritual message to a carnal crowd. And we've got a carnal crowd 
They're all caught up in the excitement of Jesus, the guy that can heal people. They're so caught up in him that they're all ready to worship people. I mean, we've got this woman, she's practically a Catholic right here, ready to worship his mother. Because she is, you know, physically of Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He throws a wet blanket on that and says, you know, who are my mother and brother and sisters? It's they that do the will of my father. That, they are my family. They are what's more important. So, you know, when you compare what we see in Luke chapter 11, verse 27 through 28, there's no doubt that is exactly what was going on in the story. When they're pointing out Jesus' family, these people were lifting them up in a way that they weren't supposed to. They were only physically Jesus' family. So now think about this, too. This is just a little side note, you know, something we can kind of throw at the Zionist people. But if Jesus didn't make a big deal about his physical family, his half-brothers and sisters, his mother, then why would we make a big deal about the physical descendants of Abraham? Can somebody explain that one to me? Why would we make such a big stink about that when they don't do the will of the Father? Think about that one for a little bit. You know what? There's a lot of Baptists that haven't learned this lesson yet. If they were back in that day, they'd be with that woman too, praising Mary. And they know not to praise Mary because we're against the Catholics and they do that too much. But you know what? They'd be praising the brothers and sisters. You know, they'd have told, they'd have told the woman, hey, you be quiet. You're a Catholic. It's his brothers and sisters we're supposed to be praising. We're going you know, you know, to go worship them. We're going to go bless them so we can get a blessing. No, folks, that's not how that works, and this is a great example of that. So this would have been a very important uh, lesson for the Jews especially. And so while we see the popularity of Jesus growing in this chapter, it is also clear that many people are only getting what they want from Jesus instead of what he wants them to get. And so that we see in this chapter, we see misplaced methods and the fact that the Jews were doing a lot of things wrong. They were misapplying things. They had a lot of bad motives for what they were doing. They were very, they were a very misguided people. And Jesus is trying to get them set. He's trying to set them straight. He's trying to do whatever he can to get them to see the spiritual. But these people were so caught up in their own customs and in their own ways that they, they kept missing the boat. And we need to be careful about that too as, you know, individuals that we don't misplace, you know, our methods and our motives and get focused on the wrong things. We need to keep the focus where it belongs. We need to keep, uh, we need to do things the right way for the right reasons. Otherwise, we're going to end up being like these Pharisees and scribes and we don't want to be that way. We're going to get caught up in all the wrong things and the big deal in this story that they, or the, or the big deal in this chapter that people should have been focusing on was Jesus. Like they were ready, to, they were excited about everything except Jesus Christ and not and and who he was, the Son of God, who he was, the Savior of the world. They only saw him as a very impressive Jew who could heal people, and that wasn't right. That wasn't what God wanted. And so, hopefully, I uh, got some good lessons from that that we can learn. So, with that, let's pray, dear Lord. We thank you so much for this, uh, these wonderful lessons you gave us, stories of your miracles and message. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to apply these things in our life. I pray you'll help us to uh, just keep our focus where it should be. Help us to keep it on you. Help us to do things uh, 
the way that you want. Help us not to be out just looking for excuses to accuse people, but we'll just focus on doing the right thing in our own life and our own heart for just for you. In your name we pray. Amen.